Thank you, Dr. Helwig, and thank you for playing the piano very graciously, and thank you for being here. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Amos chapter 9. Amos chapter 9. We've been in the book of Amos most of this semester, and so today I get to bring you the very last chapter in this book and share with you about God's righteous judgment and His salvation. Well, if you will just, for a moment, think about our culture, I think you'll agree with the statement that I'm about to make. We are in a culture, we have been in a culture, that is fascinated with the end of the world. Would you agree with that? And this is nothing new, okay? Some of my favorite movies uh, date back to 1969, Charlton Heston and the Planet of the Apes. That was a dystopia of sorts, where the end of the world had come and it was ruled by apes. And as we see, that has come to pass. And uh, so, very predictive, uh, Arthur P. Jacobs. And, uh, you know, others that, that came along after that. Logan's Run, you've probably never heard of that. Another dystopia, uh, futuristic movie. And now our culture is into all these new movies that have the same theme, whether it's uh, the, uh, the, uh, the games, the Hunger Games, or the Maze, or uh, the one that my wife likes, Divergent, where they're all categorized into these... Uh, these, these clans, and, and the whole world has fallen apart. Or maybe it's The Walking Dead that's popular on television where the world has fallen apart and we are now reaping. We are now uh, sowing, reaping what we've, what we've sown and we're dealing with what's going on. Well, this is nothing new. The culture at large, I think, has built in them just kind of a, a thought that all things have to come to an end. And so when you look at media, and you look at novels, and you look at television, this is a constant theme no matter what decade you are in. The end of the world in some format. Well, the world is thinking there's going to be an end, and that's a great opportunity for us to share the gospel. But now let's talk about the church. Just as the, the world is fascinated with the end... The church seems to be even more so fascinated with the end. And again, this is nothing new. I mean, I remember in the 80s watching these very bad uh, 1970s films called A Thief in the Night and A Distant Thunder. I mean, I don't know if you remember those, but basically people in bell-bottoms were running from the Antichrist. And uh, you should YouTube it. I mean, really, you should. And it, it, it's pretty funny. Uh, when you look back on it, but, but all the way back from the 70s and Hal Lindsey and late great planet Earth and the 80s and the 90s with the Left Behind series of books and movies and, and even today with blood moons and uh, uh, predictions of Jesus coming back, the church is infatuated with the end of the world. Now, it's good when the world is infatuated with this because it's an opportunity to share the gospel. It can be a bad thing when the church is infatuated, and I'll tell you why it can be a bad thing. Now, let me state very clearly, I believe Jesus is coming again. And I believe there's a literal tribulation, and the Lord is going to come, and the Antichrist will be real, and all those things that we read about in Revelation and we read about in Matthew 24 are going to happen. 
The problem with the church, though, is that people are so infatuated with the end, but it doesn't seem to produce any activation of our faith. Let me give you an example. I had a guy that was a member of my church for years, and he was absolutely taken with the coming of the Lord. And he would um, constantly uh, have these uh, gatherings where he would get fellow believers together. And they would clip newspapers and they would say, you see, this right here is the prediction of Isaiah. And then they would show another newspaper clipping and they would say, this right here, this is what Daniel was talking about. And they were absolutely confident that these newspaper articles were lining up with Old Testament prophecies uh, that were, were, could be very vague and, and, um, and, and not exact. And so here they, they had it all figured out. And this man would come to me and he would say, Now, Pastor, if you ever want me to teach on prophecy, because that's my thing, you know, is prophecy. And so I just asked him one day, I said, You know, I know you're infatuated with prophecy. But how has that infatuation motivated you to go knock on doors and share the gospel? Because if we really believe, and, and here's where I think the church gets this wrong. I mean, there's nothing wrong with preaching the coming judgment of God. We need to preach that. But if that does not in some way activate us to share the gospel, then we obviously don't believe what we're reading and getting all excited about. I mean, if you really believed that the blood moons were a sign, how many people did you run out to tell the Lord is at hand? I mean, if, if we knew a fire was going to consume this building, would we sit and be fascinated with all the signs of the fire? Well, you see there's smoke in this room and there's damage in that room. Or would we go out and we say to people, it's here, it's coming, it's evident, repent, leave, save yourselves, do whatever you can. I mean, that's what we would do if we truly believe this building was on fire, and so, so many believers, I think, they like to talk about the end of the world, but it's not leading us to repentance, it's not leading us into true revival, it's not leading us into more witnessing, it's not leading us into more faithful church attendance. In fact, it seems to be doing the exact opposite, doesn't it? It seems to be leading us all away from these things. Well, as we come to Amos chapter 9, you might be saying, well, what's your point with all this? I think this is very... Um, near where the northern tribes of Israel were in the day of Amos, especially as we come to chapter 9. Chapter 9 is a chapter on the judgment of God and the mercy of God. Amos had been preaching this message through the entire book, his ministry as a prophet. He was preaching the judgment of God is coming, repent. The problem was that the people of the northern kingdom of Israel did not think that this message had any relevance to them. Now, they were glad to welcome the judgment of God and they were glad to welcome the coming of the promised anointed one, the Messiah, but the problem was that when you read Amos, you see very clearly over and over again the theme cropping up that these people felt like Judgment was for everybody else, not them. And I would almost say that that's how the church feels today. That, you know, the coming of the Lord is for everybody else, 
we don't need to worry about it. We're all just going to be raptured and, and so all is well. We can sit back and relax and put everything on autopilot. I think the world, the, the nation that we're living in, they might say, yes, something is going to happen, something is coming to an end, but I don't think they think that that judgment is going to fall on them. Well, let me encourage you, believer, that when the Lord Jesus returns... There are two judgments mentioned in Scripture. One is for the unbeliever whose sins will be judged because they do not have a Christ, a Messiah, a Savior to cover them. And their sins will be judged and they will be sent to eternal punishment. And we need to proclaim that message. The other judgment will be for believers and their works. Our works do not save us, but the Bible is very clear that the Lord will hold accountable for the talents that He has given us for the gifts that He has given us, for the calling that He's put on our life. And so the judgment that we will face as believers is uh, more, if you will, of, um, I like to say, an award ceremony where the crowns are received or not received. And what, one of the things that I find so many believers astonished to learn, but the Bible so clearly teaches, is that there are rewards in heaven. And while everyone will have their cup running over, some will have big gulps and others tumblers. And so let me just encourage you. Let me encourage you with all sincerity. Serve the Lord and look forward to that coming. And, uh, you know, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Not on earth. Isn't that what Jesus said? Lay up for yourselves. Invest in treasures to come. There are rewards. Well, there's so many of us, we, we look at the coming of the Lord and we think, well, that's for everyone else. It's not for me. It has no relevance to me except to beam me out of here. But no, the coming of the Lord means an account for the talents that the Master has given you and He has given me. And for those that are lost, it means an accounting of sin without a Savior. And so, just as in Amos's day, the people there thought that this judgment was for everyone else but them. They were politically and economically and even spiritually comfortable. But they needed to learn that this judgment did pertain to them. There was a message for them. We need to remember that as well today. Well, there's two things I want you to see in this passage of Scripture as we look at the judgment of God. Uh, first, I want you to see the negative, the, uh, the judgment of God. And we're just going to look at five... Uh, truths about God's judgment that He gives in this passage. We need to think about the judgment of God. What does it involve? What does it look like? For the people of Amos' day, it is clearly spelled out in verses 1 through 10. And I think we can learn about the character of God and the character of His judgment by looking at that judgment that is laid out in Amos chapter 9, verse 1 through 10. But then we have good news. Not only do we have the judgment of God, but we have the salvation of God in verses 11 through 15. So God is not only going to judge His people and do it in a God-centered way, but God is positively going to provide salvation for His people. And so we'll look at that in verse 11 through 15. So let's look number one, if you will. The judgment of God. Five truths about the judgment of God that we see here in Amos chapter 9 that we need to remember, we need to know, we need to preach about this character, these attributes of God's judgment. Number one, notice 
that the judgment of God is righteous. It's righteous. And we see that righteous judgment in verse 1. Amos says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. And he said... Now just stop there for a moment. There's a lot in that opening phrase. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. If you will get the historical context of the book of Amos, you will find that it is set in the reign and rule of Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II was a cunning political man. He was able to increase the borders of northern Israel. He was able to, by increasing the borders, increase trade routes. By increasing trade routes, he was able to get the economy up. And he also was a man who was not committed to the Holy Scriptures. He was committed to religion, but he was not committed to the relationship with Almighty God. It's interesting because as Amos is preaching and prophesying, the second Jeroboam, between the second Jeroboam and the first Jeroboam, many, many years had passed. But not much had changed spiritually in the nation of Israel, in the northern kingdoms. And so when Amos says here in verse 1, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, that is a reference to what Jeroboam the first had instituted. And we read about that in 1 Kings chapter 12, uh, verses 28 to 32. Let me just kind of refresh your memory. When the northern kingdom split off from the southern kingdom, in 1 Kings chapter 12, we begin reading about the fact that the first Jeroboam, the great-great-grandfather of this Jeroboam, knew that if he continued to let the people of the northern kingdom go back to the south, to specifically Jerusalem, to the temple, to worship, that their allegiance would eventually stop being toward he, uh, his kingdom, and his nation. And so what he did is he took it upon himself, Jeroboam I, to set up false worship in the northern kingdoms. In fact, just take your Bible and turn to 1 Kings chapter 12 for just a moment. Let's connect uh, these two passages here because this is really significant. 1 Kings chapter 12. And I want to just read to you a section in 1 Kings chapter 12 that explains the background of Amos 9.1. 1 Kings chapter 12 will begin in verse 27. Now this is Jeroboam the first speaking. He says, If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, that's the southern kingdom, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, the king of Judah, the southern kingdom. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So he has a political dilemma. What does he do? Verse 28. So the king took counsel and he made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, and he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin for the people. They went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places, and he appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. You see what he's doing? Not only does he make golden calves, but he appoints his own priesthood, he makes his own temple, 
He's setting up a false god, false worship. Keep reading. And they, he offered sacrifices on the altar. That means that Jeroboam took the place of the priest. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priest of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day in the eighth month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel. So he made his own feast. And then it says he went up to the altar to make offerings. The first Jeroboam instituted false worship on every level. He created his own temple. He created his own God. He created his own priests. He created his own feast. And so here as we come to Amos 9, these are the descendants. These are the people that Jeroboam the first had instituted this false worship for. And Amos says, almost as a pun, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. Who had been standing beside the altar? Jeroboam the first. And uh, who had been standing beside the altar? False, false priests and false worshipers. And so Amos says here, God is coming to judge, but His judgment is righteous. He is going to replace the counterfeit gods that have been in place for so many years. And God is going to come and judge and take the counterfeit and replace it with that which is real. Friends, when God judges His people, it is always a righteous judgment for a righteous reason. God doesn't just arbitrarily judge. He's not capricious. His anger is not like our anger that explodes in wrath for no reason. God's judgment is always right. It's always true. It's always based upon His Word and what He has said. And so for the people of Amos' day, they needed to be judged because for so many years, unrighteousness had been the religion of the land and wickedness had reigned over the religious institutions and the counterfeit had been serving in the place of the real. And so in verse 1, Amos says, I saw the Lord and I saw Him standing beside the counterfeit altar. I saw the real God standing in His place ready to judge. Now, not only is God's judgment righteous, but second, the judgment of God is sweeping. And we see that sweeping from verses 1b through verse 4. God says here, My righteous judgment is going to come because you have violated my truth. I have been gracious with you. I am right to judge you. But notice how sweeping that judgment is. There's no place to hide. There's no place to go. There is no cover for anyone. First, the political structures will be struck. Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of the people. From the top to the bottom, politically, socially, everyone will face this judgment. And those who are left, he says, I will kill them with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. Notice also, there's, there's no supernatural escape. Verse 2, If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, for there I will bring them down. Notice just how sweeping it is. There is nowhere you can go. 
You can't run to your government. You can't run to your money. You cannot run even to heaven and to death. For there I'll find you. Verse 3, if they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, the mountains, from there I'll search them out and take them. If they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, the depths, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. If they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. In other words, in these verses, we see the sweeping judgment of God. There is nowhere to hide from God's gaze and His judgment. It's a sweeping judgment. And so it will be at the coming of the Lord Jesus, right? There'll be nowhere to hide from the sweeping judgment of the Lord. Next, the judgment of God is sovereign. We see the sovereignty of this judgment in verses 5 and 6. For the Lord God of hosts, that is the sovereign one, He who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile, He who builds the upper chambers in the heavens and founds His vaults upon the earth, He who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth, the Lord is His name. Here Amos is simply saying, God is the sovereign one. And whether in the heavens, or in the sky, or, or on the earth, the Lord's sovereignty rules and reigns, and it especially will rule and reign in judgment. Notice next, His judgment is just. Verse 7 and verse uh, 8. Verse 7, Are you not like the Cushites to me? O people of Israel, declares the Lord, did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Kaptor, and the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground. Here in verses 7 and 8, he's simply saying to them, You know, you depend upon the Exodus. You know, notice he says, Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt? Verse 7. The people were constantly depending on their spiritual past. They were proclaiming, Lord, didn't you bring us out of Egypt? Aren't we your covenant people? Aren't we chosen? Aren't we blessed? They were depending on their past, but what God says here in verse 8 is the problem is they have a moral present. They are immoral in the present. They cannot depend upon the past for salvation. They have to be held accountable for the present. Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom. Today it is sinful. Today in the present it is immoral. Aren't there so many people that are depending on their spiritual past and yet they're accountable for their spiritual present? Well, here we just see the righteous judgment of God, the sweeping judgment of God, the sovereign judgment of God, the just judgment of God, and finally the merciful judgment of God. Even though this judgment is coming, we read in verse 8, I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. There will be a remnant that God will mercifully save. He will not destroy. Now let me just say a word about this judgment of God. That's a lot to digest. And you could probably preach on each one of these attributes of the judgment of God. But I think here in this passage you see it so clearly, so simply. God's judgment is righteous and sweeping and sovereign and merciful and just. And yet this is a message that we need to proclaim to people. Because again, as I said at the beginning, people are excited about the end of the world, but they have no concept 
that the judgment of God is coming for them if they are without Christ. They're dependent upon their spiritual past. And they don't care about their spiritual present. Let me give you an example. I remember several years ago, I decided on Wednesday nights that I would not teach, but instead I was going to go out and take the membership role, and I was going to knock on the doors of those members who had not been coming to our church for years. I wanted to know where they were, and I wanted to encourage them and shepherd them, and I'll tell you that most of those visits were very discouraging. Uh, people don't come to church for a reason, and they don't want shepherding. And so I remember we went to this one house, and uh, it was me and another church member, and uh, we walk in, and it's an elderly lady, and she had not been coming because physically she could not come to church. But sitting there at the counter of the kitchen was her son and her daughter-in-law. And, uh, you know, the son was quite a character. You know, he was a good old boy. And he had his 12-pack of Keystone beer there on the counter. And he opened one and offered it to us. That was very kind. And um, I wanted to know what we were there for. And I said, well, I'm the pastor of... Celtus First Baptist Church. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My mama, she's a member out there. And I said, yes, well, um, you know, we just wanted to check up. And I know she hasn't been in a while because she's not physically able. And uh, so I, I said, how about you? And he said, yeah, I, I used to go to that church. And I said, oh, okay. Well, let me ask you a question. If you were to die today, and I, I presented the gospel to him. I started presenting the gospel. And in the middle of presenting the gospel, this man looks at me with his beer in his hand, sipping it. And his shirt tucked out and just looks, you know, like a slob. And he says, yeah, yeah, I've done all that. I've got Jesus in my heart. And I don't need to go to church. Now, did you, did you just catch that? I mean, here you have this man. He's so um, rebellious is the best way I could put it. Yeah, I've done that. Yeah, haven't we all, right? I mean, collect your $200 and pass go. Just say your prayer. It's all good, sweetie. Uh, you know, I, I don't know who taught that man that. And I, I don't know any man's heart. I don't know any woman's heart. I only know mine and I barely know it, right? But one of the things I can say is we do know by certain fruit, don't we? By certain evidences, if someone is truly a believer. And this man, it grieved me that day because trying to present the gospel to him, he didn't even want to hear it. Now, he's supposedly filled with the Holy Spirit, right? And uh, born again by the power and the blood of Jesus. But he doesn't want to hear the gospel. He doesn't want a fellowship with God's people. He's not interested in what I have to say, but he wants me to know that I can be quiet because he's done that. Now, you know, there's a lot of people out there that think the same way that man thinks. They believe the same way that man th believes. And uh, some of them are sitting in your churches. And they need to hear the message that judgment is coming. And God is not going to grade on a curve. He is going to look at our moral past and our moral present. And His judgment is going to be sweeping and it's going to be sovereign. His judgment is going to be just because we are sinners. And we have violated the worship and the holiness of God, the standard of God. All have sinned. We've fallen short of the standard, short of the glory of God. And the only way we will be saved from the judgment of God is through the blood and the mercy and the salvation and the redemption offered in Jesus Christ. The world needs to hear that message, don't they? It's, it's bad news. It is. 
but it's good news and we need to preach that message. Well, that brings me to the next point, the final point. When we look at verses 11 through 15 of chapter 9, it goes from the bad news of judgment and the character of God's judgment to the positive news that God doesn't just judge His people, He also provides a way of salvation. God always provides a way of salvation. And so in the middle of all of this preaching on judgment, Amos turns the page in verse 11. He's preaching to the people, telling them to repent, and then immediately it becomes positive. The sun comes out in verse 11. And Amos looks forward to the day when salvation will come for all of Israel. Not the northern kingdom or just the southern, but all of Israel. And not just Israel, but all of the world. Where all the nations of the world will be blessed through the seed of Abraham. So notice the salvation of God, which we also need to preach. Verse 11. It says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen. And notice who says they will raise it up. Salvation is provided by God. I will raise up. God is the one who brings and gives and provides salvation. Now the salvation spoken of there, it's uh, kind of a unique phrase, the booth of David. Some people think that refers to the feast of booths, and it may, but there's a lot of speculation on that. The, the point is, the Davidic line, the promised king, that's talking about Jesus Christ. And it's saying that even though the line of David has fallen, and David's son has committed sin, and David's grandson has committed sin, and the nation has been divided, even though the booth of David has fallen, the kingdom of David seems to have fallen, spiritually and even politically, that there is going to come a day when God is going to raise up another David, another king, and that raising up is Jesus. And he is going to repair the breaches that have come to Israel. He's going to raise up the ruins. He's going to rebuild as in the days of old. Do you notice it there? He's going to repair, raise, and rebuild. God is going to provide salvation. But look at verse 12. Not only is God going to provide salvation, but that salvation is for everyone, not just Israel. That they may possess the remnant of Edom. Edom was hostility from the world. And so that those that are hostile towards God, hostile towards His people, will be hostile no more. All the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord, will be raised and rebuilt and repaired. So it's going to be gracious to all, the salvation of God. Notice, thirdly, the salvation of God is going to be restorative. Restorative. Now, here... At, the, uh, at verse 13, you see the reverse effects of the curse. In the book of Genesis and book of Romans chapter 8, you read about the effects of the curse, the effects of the fall of man and sin. But notice in verse 13 and 14, there's a promise that God is going to restore. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The curse is lifted with this promise. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. 
They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They'll make gardens and eat their fruit. I'll plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them. There is a promise that I'm going to restore, says the Lord. I'm going to bring salvation that is provided by me, gracious to all, restoring, removing the curse that sin has brought. And then the very last thing about God's salvation that I love in the very last words of Amos, says the Lord your God. This is a promise from God. You know, Amos opens with this phrase. Just turn back to Amos chapter 1. The words of Amos. Now the words of Amos were good, right? They were prophecy, they were preaching, they were declaring what God had said. But notice how the book ends. Go back to the end of the book. Says the Lord your God. It begins with the words of Amos and it ends with the promise of God. God says, I will bring salvation and restoration. Friends, these are two themes in Scripture that go together. You know, we discuss in preaching class the meta-narratives of Scripture. This would definitely be one of those meta-narratives of Scripture. There is judgment. We read about the judgment of God constantly, but there is also salvation that always accompanies that judgment. Isn't that wonderful? And we need to preach both of these and teach both of these concepts to our people. Take just a moment and think. If you only preach the salvation of God, then you have an imbalanced gospel, don't you? Because people don't know what they need to be saved from. If we do not preach about judgment and sin and the curse and the effects of the curse, then people have no idea why they need a Savior. So much of evangelicalism over the past 30 years has made this mistake. We've shied away from preaching the judgment of God, haven't we? We've not preached about hell. We've not preached about sin. And I, I challenge you, preach about hell, preach about sin, preach about the judgment of God, and people will come up to you at the end of the service and say, you don't hear that anymore. Because we don't hear that anymore, do we? In fact, most of the presentations of the gospel today are things like this. God has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, He does have a wonderful plan, but that's not the gospel. Okay, The gospel is we're sinners in need of salvation. And if people don't hear that, if they don't hear the judgment of God, then they think that Jesus is just something else they tackle into their life, right? He's just a self-help, Jesus. It's like Hinduism, you know? We can have a polytheism of gods and Jesus can be added to that. And that's not a problem. Just adding. And yeah, okay, great. I'm so glad he has a wonderful plan for my life because I don't have a plan and I certainly need a plan and I need a purpose. And so, hallelujah, I'll take him. I'll take him. And the problem is, though, uh, the people who, who hear the gospel and they only hear about the salvation of God and they fail to hear about this judgment of God, they walk away and they have an incomplete gospel. They see no need for a Savior. They see no sin in their own life. They see no repentance. And they're very much like the rich young ruler who says, but I've done all these things. And yet if Jesus himself were there presenting the gospel they would probably walk away as the rich young ruler walked away because they haven't heard the complete gospel. So we need to preach about the judgment of God. And if you say, well, what is the judgment of God? What are the themes? Look in Amos 9. You'll see these themes about God's judgment and His attributes. But then, friend, we don't need to stop there, do we? 
I mean, if all we preach is judgment, then we give people no hope. And I've seen the opposite happen as well. I've seen pastors who are only hell, fire, and brimstone. And they're only judgment. And they're only negativity. And they're only repent, repent, repent. We also need to be told about grace, don't we? We need to be told about the grace of the Lord Jesus. We need to be told because we know how we fail to live up to the promises of God. I mean, I do. And I need to learn and know and hear messages about the mercy and the restoration and the forgiveness that Jesus Christ offers. Friends, we need both of these themes in our teaching and preaching. Amen? Amos had them both right together in this one chapter. Isn't it beautiful how they just come together? So preach that word and teach that word and be a blessing as you present the full counsel of the gospel. Let's pray.